Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've just been to see Wonka. Yes. The uh, origin story that we've all been crying out for since 1964. Of <laughs> <laughs> um, Roald Dahl um, wrote uh, Charlie and Chocolate Factory um, about a little boy who uh, wins a golden ticket to visit the magical factory of uh, Willy Wonka. He wrote that. That was published in 1964. And that's constantly considered one of the great British children's novels. It's an absolute classic. Roald Dahl is one of the great British children's authors. Mm. And it's his key work, I think. Mm. Um, and that was made into a film uh, by Americans in 1971, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which starred Gene Wilder mm. and was a musical and is, again, beloved. Mm. Um, there was uh, another version made in 2005, uh, adapting the same story, directed by Tim Burton mm. with Johnny Depp, um, which I haven't seen in a while. Um, it was all right, actually. Didn't I, I saw song. it. I saw it and remember liking it, but actually remember almost nothing about it now. I listen to the songs, you know. I mean, the uh -huh. thing is, so the songs from, from the 1971 version, I think were in the book. Uh -huh. The Oompa Loompas sing whenever the children, uh, you know, one of their demises, there will be a song. And those songs were adapted faithfully into the songs mm. in 1971. And there were original songs written by Danny Elfman for the 2005 version. Jose? What? Come in here a second. I need to record a correction. Okay. Yes. Correction, um, having just watched a couple of the um, songs from the 2005 version, because I want to show you them because you don't remember them, um, and then checking <laughs> the book, these are the original songs. Oh, right. Okay. As written. Yeah, these are the, well, for the most part, faithfully adapted lyrics, oh. and they were original for 1971. All right. I knew I got it the wrong way around. Mm. There you go. This film is a, a, a reimagining. Um, of some aspects, but it's clearly based to some extent or, or remembering the 1971 version. Um, certainly in that it faithfully copies <laughs> the design of the Oompa Loompas uh, from 1971, and it also um, has a couple of the songs. Mm. So the, uh, the World of Pure Imagination, if that's the title of that song, but you know mm. the one, and the Oompa Loompa song both mm. reappear here, and they're kind of rewritten and readapted, and new things happen, and there is a whole new score it's a musical, which I don't think, rather like The Greatest Showman, I don't think the um, advertising went out of its way to tell you it was a musical. And it was a, it shouldn't have been a surprise because both of the previous films based on Charlie and Chocolate Factory had been musicals. Um, but still, when the film starts and... I didn't expect it to be a musical. Yeah. I, mean, I hadn't read anything on it. When the film starts and, and Willy Wonka's on the boat and he starts singing, I'm like, oh, God, it's going to be a musical again. Right, okay. And then we'll see how it goes, you know? Yes. Because I'm not, I'm not against musicals. You always, I think, kind of think, oh, God, he hates musicals. And I don't. I like good musicals. But when you've forgotten that it's likely don't. to be one, <laughs> when, when you've forgotten that it's likely to be one, or you haven't really been told, uh, then, you know, you have to adjust. And I think that's kind of why they don't... Because like, The Great Showman made so much money. was hugely yeah, yeah, popular. Yeah. But they didn't tell anyone beforehand. They didn't go out of their way to say this is a musical because I think they think they can't sell musicals. You know? And yet all of the Disney... Yeah. films are all musicals so i think that's a nonsense and i think it's particularly nonsense in films that are largely addressed to children like this one is i think hmm. this version is directed by paul king uh whose work we've talked about before we talked about paddington 2 he yeah. also directed paddington 1 um and i think he's he's written or writing the next paddington but i don't know if he'll direct it um and you can see a continuity he, he also has 
um, some regular collaborators. So Hugh Grant returns, Sally Hawkins, mm. um, Tom Davis, one or two others. But he's also working with you know new people, and the main one is Timothy Chalamet, yes. who plays Wonka, who is wonderful. Yeah. Um, I mean, from the moment, so I didn't expect it to be a musical, and there's that moment where he lands in the city, and there's the uh, gaslight, and he just twirls around the gaslight before landing, and I thought, oh my god, this is wonderful. You know, because it was like so musical and rhythmic and surprising and, you know, lovely to see, right? It was just kind of, mm. you know, just uh, a, a, a curlicue <laughs> of pleasure, really. Um, so so that completely won me over. Uh, and and I, I think I remained won over for the rest of the film, really. I think, you know, the thing about these Paul King films is they have such a such a good nature, right? Mm. Like, they're so warm. So often they're dealing with quite dark things, right? Kind of, you know, in this case, if you look at it, it's kind of, you know, young people who are cheated, imprisoned, their lives taken away from them, abandoned, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you really don't feel that through most of the film because, you know, they're constantly encountering kind of warmth and kindness and good nature. Right. And the, I think Timothy Chalamet's triumph is to pull that off. You know, mm. the, just... the characters who also deal with their circumstances with a sense of humour and an irony. Mm. They know the circumstances that they're in, and and there's a lightness to the way it's all played, mm. which doesn't kind of it doesn't fail to get across that it's a terrible situation that they're in. But it does actually, it handles the tone of that quite nicely. I, I think if this is marketed properly, it, it's surely the Christmas film of the year, really, because, you know, I think it is like a film for the whole family. And it's really inventive and yet good natured and kind. And, you know, mm. uh, it's people in difficult circumstances kind of, kind of coming together and, you know, winning over evil as represented by this cabal of chocolatier <laughs> yeah. that really do represent the kind of you know a corporate culture that's hoarding all the money and you know they they're an oligopoly you know and they control everything and they they have the police mm. in their pocket and so on it kind of you know it's interesting to have a children's film that that talks about things in that way like and it's not a kind of i mean if you think about like Rumpelstiltskin. Mm. Yeah, that was about like the contract of if you can guess my name, then you can get out of the deal sort of mm. thing. But it's like it's about kind of, you know, the, the, the evils of the contract sort of mm. thing. But a lot of that's going on here, you know, so they get caught by the small print mm. into effectively endangered servitude for um, the people who are putting them up. Um, you've got um, the deal that's eventually made at the end with the chocolatiers, um, which again, you know, which although it's it's supposed to be a faithful deal. They've added a little bit onto it, which they haven't said, which is that we're also going to murder you. Yeah. Um, but uh, and you got. But this actually, it's whole... also a bad faith deal in the sense that the young girl is meant to be free, and yes. in fact, she isn't. So yeah, there's that as well. I mean, that's the one thing I was thinking when when Wonka's going off, having made the deal, and thinking I'd be going. I want to see them free first. Mm. They're not going. <laughs> um, and there's a whole as you say, play with the police and that the police are in the corporate pocket and that they're doing what they mm. want. And and the um, church. Yeah. And there's no suggestion that these things are, these are like social goods for the people. Mm. They are goods for the people with power. Mm. Um, 
So it's kind of interesting to have that so easily and legibly put across in a film that's for children. Yeah. You know? Uh, it's got such a good tone and kind of such a good mood, really. Um, and I thought it was beautiful to look at and really visually inventive. And visually inventive in a kind of an offbeat way. Yeah, so, you know, the giraffe and the milking the giraffe and then the bringing the giraffe to the church, mm. you know, with this adorable giraffe that nonetheless looks completely out of place in every place, right? Mm. You know, I thought, uh, yeah, there's a kind of a quirkiness uh, to the visual humour that I really loved. I, I was actually fairly impressed by some of the visual design. And, mm. and, and it's it's not just... Um... It's not just in the big things like the like the setting thing, but it's in things like the shot selections. You know, the way things are staged. Things are staged mm. for the frame. It's sure. not just shot reverse shots. I mean, there's an element of that, but you know, there's a, there's an awful lot of you looking at people's faces as there is mm. in any film. But but there is always an intention to frame something in an interesting way or a way that is providing a joke or whatever it might be. Mm. You know, it's it's attentive to the way it looks. Mm. Um, although I do have an issue with the color. I, I made it crack to you at the end that the, the credits had more colour than the rest of the film because they're in pink and yellow and a little bit of green. And, the, and of course, there is colour in the film. But the issue that I have is that, and I, th I think I think this way about the Paddington films as well, is that it's also muted. It's also muted. That, and I think part of it is that there's so much use of CGI that it's an attempt to make everything um, kind of fit and not ha not have anything look too out of place, um, but I, I find that, and it's a funny thing that I find with British films that do this. I, I think the same thing about the Matthew Vaughan films, Kingsman, um, in particular, where the visual effects, the CGI is. I mean, obviously CGI is phony, right? It's been made on a computer, but there's something particularly phony looking about the way it comes across in these British films that I don't quite understand. The, the animation is a little bit too smooth and the rendering of, you know, the way light kind of plays on the objects that have been inserted is a little bit too flat. I, I find it really, I don't like to look at it, you know, I wish it looked better than it does. Um, yes, well, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree. I thought um, the colour was very deliberate and I thought there were moments like, you know, the flight over the night sky with the balloons, mm. right, where everything looks very dark, black almost, but the balloons are like really kind of intensely colored, almost neon colored. You know, I thought that was beautiful. Mm. Um, I would I would disagree with the word neon. They, they're brighter than everything else. But well, no, at I that moment, I think they're neon. Uh, I think you're right about the rest of the film being muted, but to me that just kind of demonstrates a knowledge and dexterity with the use of color, right? That it's kind of reserved for particular moments. Uh, and I thought it was very well judged. Mm. Um, I think it would have been weird to have, because, you know, the film also has, what do you call it? What do you, what's the term when you have something both futuristic and Victorian? Steampunk. The, the film has a little bit of a steampunk yeah. feel to it, right? So, you know, I think it would have been wrong to make it, if you make that too bright, then it destroys that kind of, you know, Victorian kind of dimension to it, yeah. Um, so I like that for most of the film, the colors are kind of muted. But, you know, there are moments where they do spring out. Uh, and I like that very much. I thought it was like, 
you know, wonderful design that leaves room for other things. So I, for example, I thought the whole scenes in the cathedral kind of had a very different feel, you know, than in the um, laundry jail, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, which had to do with sheen. Yeah, which mm -hmm. almost, you know, so I liked, I liked all of that, actually. And I, you know, you were saying at the end how, you know, it'd be nice to see a musical with people who could sing. Yes. And I really was charmed by Chalamet. He reminded me of Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face, right? You might know or remember that Audrey Hepburn was dubbed in My Fair Lady, mm. but she uses her own voice in Funny Face. And of course, she's got a tiny little voice, very charming and very expressive, mm. right? So she's not a singer, but she is someone being very expressive with her singing, yeah, with the, with the voice God gave her, right? Which has much more of an emotional impact than that almost soulless kind of, you know, perfect singing that you get in My Fair Lady. So, so you know, uh, Chalamet isn't the best singer in the world, but I thought he's completely charming, and I'm really glad that they used his voice. So here's the point I would make, is if they had embraced that naturalness, to, you know, an and imperfection of someone who's not a born singer, but is doing, you know, having a girdie and whatever and doing their job. I would have really enjoyed that. Mm. I don't think that's what's happening here. It's through the production of the vote. The songs, generally speaking, are, are quite richly produced. And I enjoy mm. that, you know, they're, they're deep and the, you've healed the different, you know, you can separate out the instruments, that kind of thing. And they're, they're nice to listen to, right? But the vocals are produced and perfected to this, you know, kind of, you know, auto-tuned. And they all sound so tinny because of it. You know, I, I wish they had sounded more natural. Right. They don't. Right. I find them really kind of overproduced. I was, I was talking to Matt the other day. He was thinking about how, he was telling me how, how shit music was <laughs> in in the mid to late 90s when the Spice Girls in particular were the biggest thing. Cause he go, and, and he's right, because I, I I've never really listened to the Spice Girls. But if you go back and listen to those songs, the production, and it's not just the voices, it's kind of everything, is so cheap and, you know, like it's on drum machines and all the rest of it. I like those songs. And, but they the production is dreadful. If the production was good, you know, then there'd be a whole other dimension because they're not like badly written or anything. But it's the production. And here... It's the production of the voices. It just sounds so cheap and bad and like they're scared of... You have just alienated all of our female audience from the ages of like, you know, 20 to 60. And the Is gay it? men. And the gay men. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's just the fact of it. Like, and, and the production here I find really off-putting because it, it, it's like, um, like a fear of something that is like a little bit riskier. You know? No, I, I loved it. I, you know, because um, Chalamet... I mean, he is someone who went to the High School of Performing Arts and he was taught how to dance and how to sing. Right? It's just he doesn't have a great voice. Mm. But he doesn't have a terrible voice. No, no. Uh, but that's, so you can use it. Why don't they? Well, I think they did. I mean, you know, and I think those qualities came, came, came through. I found it very endearing. I liked watching him perform. Uh, and actually, I thought he was brilliant, really. You know, because... Um, so he's no longer a boy. Really? Yeah. And he doesn't have that kind of ethereal beauty that he had in Call Me By Your Name, right? There's something about his face now that, I mean, obviously he's still a handsome person, but, you know, there's a thinness to the face. You could see how he's not going to necessarily age very well, 
Yeah, he's got like a, a bit of a, a nose, yeah, mm. in profile. He's got an odd looking kind of hawkish face, really. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, he's kind of very warm. So he's, he's in this performance, he's got, he looks, you know, he's someone you look at, but he's also got a bit of a wonky face, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think makes him endearing and makes him kind of, you know, someone to connect to and with. Um, and he's kind of very winning. Yeah, he doesn't do a lot. His gestures are kind of minimal, you know, though he's got a gesture for everything. He's been clearly choreographed. Mm -hmm. uh, and he handles it very lightly in a very approachable way. I kind of, I really, I, I loved him in this. So the film took me a while to get into. It took a while to win me over, although I think eventually it did. Rather like with Paddington too, that took me about an hour to mm. to, to like work past how much I hated the kids and that sort of thing. And just the way it was trying to get up, <laughs> it just wasn't working for me. Um, and this film, you know, like I say, I, I start off going like, who needs a fucking Willy Wonka origin story? I've never cared about what, wanting to know what the character's past was. You know, in that 1971 film, I don't remember the books well, I think I did read it when I was young, but I watched the film a lot. Um, you know, he was just, he was this kind of goofy, mysterious, enigmatic guy. The whole thing is like the crowd's um, gathered around the gates waiting for him to come out. We're going to see Willy Wonka. He's been in there for ages and all that kind of thing. Like, And then you get in there and he's just kind of goofy, mad scientist. And that's what it's like. And I never needed to know how he grew up and where the factory came from. But they've invented this backstory for this, so fine. And I, I did sort of start off asking sort of sarcastic questions of the film, like... Why hasn't he got a fortune already if he can already make magic chocolate that controls people's minds? You know, like, it, but if you go into the film asking those questions, and there are lots of them you could be asking, um, then you won't ever get in tune with it, mm. right? You just have to kind of accept that this is a guy who has like magic powers of some description or, or like alchem alchemical powers. Um, but he's going about making his fortune in a way that doesn't exactly <laughs> like doesn't take advantage of them in a mind controlling fashion. That sort of thing. Um, so you just have to kind of go with it. And once I started to go with it, and once the film started to get a little bit more anarchic, because the film starts off with a lot of "I'm here to make my fortune," mm -hmm. "I'm have a dream about what it'll be," "I'm gonna da da da," and you go fucking hell, you know, like it's pretty dull and pretty. And the thing about his mother, I just can't be asked with the story I about his it. mum. You know, oh, my mum, who I love, and she made me this bar of chocolate. And usually you're so sentimental. Well, yeah, but I, and, and, <laughs> and you, the opposite. We'll go like, I, I, I really expect you to look at the story with the mum, the backstory thing, and to go, what a load of gold crap. No, I like that. I really do. But then once, and, and the songs didn't, the new songs didn't impress me much at the start, but I was thinking like, you know, maybe they grow on you and maybe the kids will like them and New stuff. songs are always a problem exactly. because you've not, you've never heard them exactly. before. So like, so. you know, you could, you, you don't sort of discard the film because of that. And once it got to working with the other guys in the poor house, the slop house, whatever. Yes, I love that. Um, and then they start, you know, escaping from the place and selling chocolate on the sly and stuff because the whole story is about not being allowed to sell your chocolate because of the cartel. Um, and the police being on your back. Like, um, I, it was around the song when... I tell you, I can remember the exact moment I started to get in tune with the film was when um, Wonka reveals to the other guys that he's made a contraption that will put the dog on a, on a, a treadmill to do all the work. Mm. You know, And like that moment, 
I thought, oh, right, I'm starting to feel this, you know? Yes. And then they, you go into this song where you jump from, from kind of room to room and building to building as they're singing about sending all this chocolate and how great mm. it is and whatever. I think that's around the same time that they're, you know, um, going down the storm drains. Mm. Well, they keep calling them storm drains. I call them sewer grates, you know? There's a lot of Americanisms in this. And you're like, is, is this supposed to be set in England? I don't mm. know. Um, well, it's not set in London. It is just like it, it's, yeah big city in Europe because... You know, some of the architecture is clearly like from Prague and some of it is from Paris and some of it is from London. So it's got like this European city mm. you look. Yeah, so like the building that, that he wants to sell his chocolate in where the other three shops are is the gallery. It's not Lafayette, I don't think. No. It's something it's, similar. I forget, I forget what they call it in the film. But it's French, basically. Well... well it's, it's, I mean, the name is French. Yeah, well, initially when you go, you thought they were going into the Piccadilly Arcade yeah. or, you know, something like that. But it has a French name. So it has yeah. a French name, is what I'm saying. And um, and as you said, there's architecture that you can recognise from all over Europe, including yeah. London. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Similar, I mean, you know. yeah. some of the greenhouses yeah, yeah. Um, are very British. Yeah, there's, you know? there's a definite kind of Crystal Palace thing going yeah. on with some of the constructions. Um, and, of course, you've got um, the two people running... Um, the, the I keep calling it a slop house, but you know, the prison basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's forced labor, forced labor of a laundry, and that's Olivia Coleman and Tom Davis, and they're both playing Cockney. Um, Tom Davis is straight up Cockney. Mm. Um, in fact, I saw him on stage because he's a stand-up, and I saw him on stage recently, and he told the story about um, uh, doing a shit in uh, Timothy Chalamet's um, trailer where he didn't mean to. Uh. <laughs> um, um, I really like Tom Davis, by the way. He's in, he's in a show. wonderful, isn't it? He's in a show called Olivia. Murder Successful, which is just the best thing ever. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and he, he's re- and he had a, a much bigger role than I expected him to as well. Yeah. Um, because I knew he'd be in it for a bit. He was in Paddington too for a bit. He's just mm. one of the prisoners, but he has a reasonably sizable role here, and he does very well. Mm. Um, and I didn't know Olivia Collins. So basically, anyway, I'm talking past the point. Basically, like this is kind of set in some conglomeration of. European cities and yeah, styles. Victorian turn of the century Europe. But there's a definite, there's a certain degree of um, cockneyness to it brought to you by those two characters. Um, when it comes to, you know, the use of language and accents, mm. it's basically either cockney or American. Mm. And American, I, I think, just feels really out of place in some of it. It doesn't mean. But although, of course, in the 1971 film, which this film is connecting to in some ways, Gene Wilder is American, and right. that's the whole, you know, he's just American in that yeah. film, and it's made by Americans, and those people are American. Yeah. So, again, you can, like, you can you can take issue with it if you want, and you can, and it, and it does fall weirdly on my ear, but... You also but you're a minor part of the audience. The majority of the audience will be North Americans, so... Yeah, exactly. Off. You think, <laughs> you think like, these are the people it's being sold to, you know? <laughs> I just think, yeah, storm drains. I mean, I didn't even notice, well, for obvious reasons. Yes, um, because you're the um, coloniser. <laughs> <laughs> Says the Brit. <laughs> um, anyway, I really loved it. Um, I really, I like the tone. I like the good nature of it. I like the winning over adversity. I like the message that, you know, chocolate is at its best when it's shared with friends. Ugh. I loved it. When uh, that thing comes and... up at the end, I said to you, it's like, it, it's, it's just like that slogan is straight out of a Cadbury's Christmas advert. 
Well, you know, you know, share your chocolate with your friends. Do, 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 lovely message and true. Um, so you not know, true. One... I bought an eight hundred and sixty gram bar of dairy milk, and it's mine. That's because you're greedy. Yeah, no one milk. else is you fucking having it. Chocolate you're the is... only person I know who doesn't like to share their food. Chocolate is best. It's mine. All mine. Mine. <laughs> Chocolate is best enjoyed when you are depriving others of it. <laughs> this is my message. <laughs> Uh, so, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, about Chalamet, right? Because I just think he's so great in this. And he was like, um, he was a kind of a, a revelation in Call Me By Your Name, right? And of course, it was a typical thing where, you know, people thought he was really great. And then there was all this uh, backlash and there was actually kind of a lot of gay backlash uh, around it. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Why? What, was that, what did that consist of? Well, you know, kind of there was a, uh, one section of a gay audience, I suppose, a gay male audience that loved the film, like I did. There was another section of the audience that thought it wasn't queer enough, right? And the whole thing with the peaks drove them crazy. And, and they wanted more explicitness. Yeah, they, they want to be queerer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more in your face or more contradictory or more anti, you know, less heteronormative or whatever. And a hatred of Chalamet went with it. Yeah, that, you know, here's like this twink and whatever. So, so, but that's just a sector of the audience. He obviously got a huge uh, following amongst young girls, right? Which is, you know, always a good thing, but it could be a limiting thing. And then... He really, I thought, kind of proved himself in a whole series of films. He was just absolutely wonderful in, what's it called, Beautiful Boy, where he played like a meth addict. Um, right? I don't know it. Yeah, it was with Steve Carell, where he played the son. Right. Um, um, yeah, it rings a bell. I thought he was wonderful in that. And then he, he, he had, he appeared in hits, but really his wasn't the main role, though he kind of redefined the role. So in Little Women, you know, the part that he played, which was the uh, Joe's childhood friend who she turns down for marriage, is often like a key part, but a minor one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he turned it into something else. And in, in, you know, he was very, very good uh, in the film. I think also the film was written to give him more of a, of a, of a role in that. And I loved him in the Woody Allen film, which for some reason, idiots despise you know it's one of those really enchanting romantic comedies you know that only woody allen seems to do at the you know at the moment and actually maybe it's because it's woody allen that people well yeah kind of yeah. you know uh but it, it's kind of a super romantic it it uses the great american songbook you know as part of the mood of the film and i thought you know he was enchanting in it and it's kind of you know, he played like pure charm, charming leading man in that, right? And it, it's almost like when he, where he doesn't come across as quite a man yet. Um, and then I think in the last year, he's he really made this transition from Dune onwards, right? Mm. Where I think now he does look like, you know, a man and not a boy, if still somewhat skinny and gangly and so on. But his features, you know, now take on a different shape. He's kind of lost, you know, that kind of puppyishness that kind of adolescents have, yeah. And he's just continued to be very good in a great diversity of roles, really. 
So, well, uh, I, I wasn't looking forward to him in this. I thought it looked like miscasting from the trailer. Right. Um, and I think part of it was that the trailer also lent heavily, or uh, not, not heavily, but to some degree, on the sentimentality. Right. You know, the, the Wonka coming to unnamed, unspecific <laughs> European city for his dream. Mm. And the thing about, you know, it's it's you and me, Mama. It's time, mm. Mama, and all that. And I had that in the trailer. And you thought, oh, right, they're, they're going to really be playing on. And Chalamet's going to be playing on that. So it's not so much him exactly, but I just thought they, they seem to be conceptualising the character in a in an overly sentimental way that I wasn't looking forward to. And he his performance, from what you could get from the trailer, seemed to play into that. And, of course, it does when they do that in the film. But the film is doing other things with it. And it has a lighter and wackier tone at times. And that's when I like the film the most. And I think he is a good fit for it. So he works out for me in the end. The film... And I'd just like to say as well that I knew about Chalamet before you because he, I saw him in Homeland. Well, I, I, he, was I saw... he was great in that. I noticed him in that as well. Right. You know? Well, I saw that Homeland, but actually he didn't register with me at that point. Um, I, thought, but... what a... I thought in five years, this boy will be the most hateable twink. <laughs> <laughs> hateable twink is, you know, how a part of the audience thought about him. Mm. Uh, but I also, th- I just want to point out also that what he does is very difficult because the film is very sophisticated and it is satirical, you know, and it has an ironic tone. But he is absolutely sincere mm-hmm. in it, right? And you buy into this world where these things are possible and so on because of that kind of warmth and sincerity. And, you know, he's not he's not playing down to the role or, you know, he's not looking at mm-hmm. He's absolutely inhabiting that kind of, you know, sincerity, which is very, very difficult to do, I think. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and and I do. I think it was a problem with the trailer that it it missold the tone mm. of what the film was going to be, mm. um, because it is. Although I'd say it, it didn't get many laughs out of me. It did a couple, um, and I I don't think I was trying to be, you know, uncharitable. I, I don't think I was sitting there going, I will not laugh at this. Mm. I could see where it was trying to get laughs, and it does it a lot. And you know, all sorts of types of jokes in it. Um, but a lot of them weren't really working for me, and quite a few of them uh, have to do with that kind of um, like adding one or two bits of dialogue to, to to sell awkwardness or you know a miscommunication between characters, that kind of thing. I just thought, no, I'm not into this. Um, but then there are times, uh, and you know, maybe it's, maybe it's unsophisticated, <laughs> but when um, Keegan Michael Key. Uh, shows up fat all of a sudden uh-huh. because he's been bribed with all this chocolate, and it's like it's that because because that happens in a montage, yeah. you know, like he's been bribed all this chocolate. He's the head of police, and he's been bribed with all this chocolate to to take down Willy Wonka. And even though that happens in a montage, he doesn't get fat in a montage, and then you just cut, and all of a sudden he's enormous. <laughs> Great laugh. Yeah. And there uh, were one or two others that really made me laugh. Um, but for the most part, it, it actually, I think the film it. made me laugh in all kinds of different ways, and they weren't like huge laughs but they were like you know kind of appreciative kind of laughs at almost everything so you know when they go into the zoo you know and the guy eats a chocolate and then they're describing how there's champagne and so on and then the whiskey and then he calls his girlfriend and it's all filmed like a film noir with a shadow Mm -hmm. you know i thought that was like you know wonderful and when he collapsed i laughed um and then the whole hugh grant thing Mm -hmm. which takes on a completely different top you know i found all of all of that very funny and very inventive in a kind of a cliche-ish British way 
but that again worked on me. Well, it's interesting uh, because despite being the Oompa Loompa who is from far away, like in the Loompa land, um, he is uber British. You know, yes. Hugh Grant playing at his most British. And kind of, well, and, of and it's, not, it's not just the accent, but it's also the kind of the refinement and the taking offence at people's behaviour kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's like it's fully embodied in in the Olympic character. It is. Um, um, though, of course, maybe for most of the world, like this is Oompa Loompa Land. <laughs> how do you mean? Well, you know, because so you're saying that uh, uh, Hugh Grant is meant to embody something foreign and exotic, and <laughs> you, know, you know, and so I think for most of the world. You know, the, uh, the, he inhabits that through the Britishness rather than in spite of it. Um, anyway, it worked very well. It did work very well. It is interesting the reconceptualization of um, the Oompa Loompa figure here. We only get one, or we see a couple others who that one uh, lives with yes. in a flashback, but we only see one, which is the Hugh Grant Oompa Loompa, and it's reconceptualized here, not as someone who Wonka went to Loompa Land and found and brought back to the factory and worked, but as someone who has, you know, agency, a role, an opinion, an attitude, who ends up going into business with Wonka. Yes. As opposed to being, you know, a subject of. Yes, and who's out to get his due. Yeah. Yeah, so he's after this because uh, Wonka owes him. Yeah, well, well, Wonka went, came to my land and took from me. Exactly. You know? So and it's yeah, yeah. So, so there's kind of like an, yeah. I mean, if one looks at that through the lens of colonialism, that is in itself a very interesting kind of. Well, thing. I think that was always one of the things, or has been one of the things that people have talked about in in the past about mm. the idea of the Olympians and the and the fact that they were originally pygmies. Mm. It, you know, kind of j- just uh, exacerbates that. Mm. Know, it kind of adds to that reading. Um, mm. But it definitely was there. And I don't really want, I, you can definitely see like the anti-woke, you know, crowd going, how dare they change my story and blah, blah, blah. And I, to an extent, I was kind of thinking that at the start, not like I'm like a great protector of Willy Wonka, but just like, it's a story and the original film has been very important to me and I grew up with it and so on. And you're thinking, oh, what are they going to do with my story? But actually you then start going, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just a story. Yes, and they can change it to something more interesting if they want, and and more wholesome if they want, and all the rest of it. And it yes. works; it really works. The Hugh Grant character is really good in this, and the mm. fact that he plays off Wonka so furiously is part of that. Yes, it's funny how how Hugh Grant has become like a national treasure by being exactly the same as he's been all along, right? And it's a measure of how things have changed around him, really, rather than him changing. Because of course, I thought he was adorable in Four Weddings and a Funeral. But, you know, this country is so mired in class that, <laughs> you know, there was a whole sector of the audience that just hated him purely for being middle class. Well, I think but... he's playing up to that in these now. Like, sure. Yeah, and he's playing it as a comic role. And the comic role is partly based on the fact that he built a reputation of this sure. type of character. Yes, that it's him. Yeah, exactly. It connects to his star persona. Uh, and he's brilliant, you know, and he's incredibly charismatic. He's very reliable in these kinds of roles these days. Yes. You know, also Rowan Atkinson as well, I thought is really reliable. Like when he, when he has a film built around him, it doesn't really work. It can be too much. Yeah. Um, and, and the films just generally just, there's always something lacking. They're not very good. Um, but when he plays a bit part, you know, that, that bit in Love Actually where he wraps the gift, mm. it's just like, it's really memorable. And he's just this, this mm. guy in a shop wrapping a gift, taking forever over it, but it's extremely memorable. Um, and here, as the priest, it, it's it wonderful. In fact, that was the other big laugh the film got for me when he picks up the phone during the funeral service and says, hello, pulpit. <laughs> what a great line and so brilliantly delivered. 
you know? And visually, that whole thing is dazzling. You know, so it's a combination of a verbal wit. Oh, this thing protected by 500 monks. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a way of, you know, so there's the line, the way that it's said. But then the visuals that accompany it, which is like, you know, all these mechanical contraptions the and blueprints. going further down. It was wonderful. Yeah, you that's know, very so nice. Kind of, you know, visually dazzling. Yeah. Um, the guy who plays the, um, the, the, the the guard at the zoo, who you see in Silhouettes, by the way, is a co-writer. Oh, wow. With Paul King, Simon Farnaby, who's written, like, like, he's from kind of British comedy and stuff. Right. Paul King himself comes from like the Mighty Boosh and things. So right. done a lot of TV directing before he started making films. Right. Well, I don't know where all the, they all come from. And you can also see, I mean, if you're particularly familiar with British comedy over the last, say, 15 years, um, then you see all sorts of people that you recognise from it. Right. Like, um, like Phil Wang and Charlotte Ritchie. Are the couple, who is Charlotte Ritchie? She, she, so the couple who get together, uh-huh. and, uh, who get married because they get the chocolate. Oh, right, yes. That's those two. Oh, lovely. Um, the guy, let me just get his name because I can't remember the actor's name. Um, Patterson Joseph, who plays Slugworth, uh, who of the three, he's the main mm. one. There's also Matt Lucas. The other one I don't recognise. I don't know if he's a particular um, figure from British comedy. But um, but there are there are quite a few of these figures and you see and Tom Davis is one. And of course, Olivia Coleman. I mean, although she is now the megastar Olivia Coleman, who can do what she wants and won the mm. Oscar and so on, um, was a, such a key figure in British comedy. Right. You know, kind of, as I said, 10, 15 years ago. And you remember her from all sorts of all sorts of things. I particularly remember her from Greenwing. I think I've mentioned before, mm. I think whenever we've talked about her, I've mentioned how much I loved her in Greenwing and that she was one of these figures who, who you really noticed when she was on screen, you yes. know, and it's not that you thought, oh, she will win an Oscar for playing Queen Anne, <laughs> like, but you thought, wow, she's wonderful, and and she, I mean, she's got to be, she's got to be about our best actress. She's incredible. Her her range is ridiculous. Well, she's wonderful in this, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's very broad. Um, you know, it's like um, a little bit of um, uh, what's that Stephen Sondheim musical? Sweeney Todd, the demon barber. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, It's a very broad performance that uh, uh, Olivia Colman does. It is a little bit like Angela Lansbury in uh, Sweeney Todd, and it works beautifully. Yeah. And I'll just say that Matthew Bainton is the third of the the chocolatiers in the Mm -hmm. cartel. And... And, you know, although I've been saying, oh, if you're familiar with British comedy, he's in Peep Show, he's in Gavin and Stacey, he's in things, but they're just not shows I've watched. Mm. So, you know, other people, other people will recognise him. I'm just not one of them because I never got into Peep Show. Mm. Despite the fact that that's the one that people think is the fucking best one in the world and is it bollocks. It's, <laughs> didn't like it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> to get back to the film, any last words? Well, I was surprised that, uh, that I got into it, although maybe, as I said, I shouldn't have been because I did end up getting into Paddington 2 and enjoying it rather a lot. Mm. Um, and and once I you know kind of discarded all those thoughts of like you you know this is my Willy Wonka and I remember him blah 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 and you just go like it's it's just a fucking story it doesn't really matter all that much and it's and it it works really well. Um, I mean you also kind of thought like oh of course they've got to turn this into a story about a heist and a action and blah 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 but no it was it worked it worked, it worked. and I think it's a much better film than the original. Uh, so you know. I was pleasantly surprised and I really loved it. And actually, it's quite a track record that King has now because I think all three of the films that I've seen, I think he's got four, I don't know his first. You know, but Paddington, Paddington 2 and these 
are all beautiful films. Uh, his first one was called Bunny and the Bull. Yes, I don't know that. Um, no, tiny budget, tiny box office. Um, never heard of it. But no, it's Paddington, Paddington 2 and Wonka. Those mm. were his three mm. main, um, or his three other films mm. <laughs> that he's directed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it works. I'm surprised by it, you know. Well done. Okay. I think some of the songs are good. I, yeah, it works. Some of the songs are good. Huh. Some of the some of the action's good. Some of the wackiness is good. Some, it makes me want to watch the seventy one one again. Ah. To be fair, yeah, because because the songs remind me of it, of course, because two of them are the same. Mm. And um, well, you know, the, a couple of things that I that I thought were lacking here, particularly that that vibrancy. Um, you know, I really vividly remember from mm. seventy one, where you know it's basically a theme park that they walk into, and then and of course it has that roll down nastiness. Which is mm. you just walk around waiting for children to die. Fantastic. That's what kids want. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I mean, what other film has a load of kids die and then you sing a song after each one to mm. celebrate? You know, well, well, you should have listened. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be no, such this... a greedy little brat. And all that. Yeah, so this film is not like that. No. Uh... More sentimental, but, um, but it does work. Uh, yeah. Uh... All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies, and uh, Blue Sky, eavesdropping.bsky.social, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>